Now let's look at our uh, scripture that we are examining, which is Mark 9, 14 through 29. Title of the sermon is Help My Unbelief. And when Jesus and the three, Peter, James, and John, had come to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing, or what were, are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd asked him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And Jesus answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. The word of the Lord. It's been said in the world that everybody has a doppelganger. Somebody that looks exactly like them. Now you're wondering, how could there be someone that looks exactly like Carlos? But it's true, in fact. And so I embarked this week on a... On a on a trial to try to figure out who is the person that looks most like Carlos, who is my true doppelganger? And I found him. I found him? That's right, Mountain on Games of Thrones, Game of Thrones. His name, his official name, half poor Julius Bjornsson, who is six feet nine, 454 pounds, is a spitting image, no? It's, it's really like looking in a mirror. He's actually more of a Bob Knuthian-like character, but whatever the case, I thought to myself, this guy is amazing when you hear a little bit about him. He's the first person to ever have won the Arnold Strongman Classic, Europe's strongest man and the world's strongest man in the same calendar year, same as myself, right? We share that as well. You know, when you look at this guy, he is the epitome of strength and power. That's why he was tasked to play this role on uh, this uh, show, Game of Thrones. And there's no question in our culture, in our society, that we value strength. Not only physical strength, but also social, emotional, and corporate strength. We value boldness. We value power. We value self-confidence. And so we have to ask the question, do these principles and do these values apply in the spiritual world? 
And the answer is no. In fact, they're the exact opposite. The spiritual world turns the physical world upside down. It's Jesus who said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. It's Jesus who said he would be first, must be last, and he who would rule must be slave of all. And indeed, Jesus triumphed over the most powerful spiritual enemy, Satan, by dying on a cross. The account of the word serves to teach us that God listens not to the self-confident and to the self-sufficient, but to the one who looks to him for strength. You see, Jesus works on behalf of those who put no confidence in themselves and lean instead on the character and promises of God. The question we have before us is this, have we learned this lesson yet? The disciples clearly have not in this story. So we're going to look at three points. Number one, we're going to look at the failure of the disciples. And then we're going to look at, number two, the success of the father. And finally, we're going to look at the healing of the son. So let's dig into this text here, the failure of the disciples. A little bit of background, we see that Jesus and the three disciples, Peter, James, and John, have been absent from the other nine disciples. They have gone up onto the mountain, onto a mountain, and Jesus has been transfigured before them. He has, uh, they have seen him in his glory as he's been transfigured, and, and they said that he was wearing clothes so white that all the bleach in the world could not even bleached them, that he was so bright and brilliant. And there was Moses and Elijah that appeared talking with Jesus. But now they're coming down from the mountain. Jesus has been transformed back into his, uh, you know, just ordinary clothes, his ordinary looking self, and they're coming back down. And they see when they're coming down that there is an argument that is occurring. Verse 14, and when they came to the nine disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and the scribes arguing with them. There's a fight going on and it appears to be between the nine disciples and the scribes, the teachers of the law. They're, they're arguing. There's actually a beautiful uh, picture of this. I don't know if you've seen this painting before. This is Raphael's The Transfiguration. And it shows a beautiful dichotomy between Jesus on the mountain with the disciples and then all of this going on underneath this, this fight, this warring that's going on between these two parties. And the father and the child is caught right in the middle of it. And immediately it says, all the crowd when they saw Jesus were greatly amazed and they ran up and greeted him. And Jesus said, what are you guys arguing about? And the father from the crowd answers and says, teacher, I brought my son to you for he has a spirit that makes him mute. This child, it's more than mute. It's this spirit of muteness and deafness and indeed a kind of epileptic seizures, but a, but a destructive kind. We see that this, this uh, malady, uh, that this spirit sort of flares up inside of him and throws him either into the water or into the fire. And it's in a condition that's been happening since birth. And the disciples have not been able to drive out this spirit. Now we have to ask the question, why not? Because the disciples have done miracles before. Jesus has sent them out. They've done unbelievable miracles, and yet they cannot seem to drive this spirit out of this child. We do note that Jesus is absent when they're trying to do this. 
But we see the reason, uh, if you look at the end, Mark 29, why they can't drive this spirit out, because it's, uh, Jesus says, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. So the disciples are not praying. They're not asking God for any help. Prayer is asking for power outside of yourself. And it appears that the disciples don't realize how powerful this evil is and how weak they are. Indeed, if you look at this painting in the, one, in the lower left corner, there's actually one of the disciples has opened a book, almost like he's looking for an incantation to go ahead and speak that will drive out this evil spirit. No, the reason that the disciples are not praying is because they're self-confident. It's like they're saying, well, Jesus isn't here, so we'll take it from here. We've got this one on our own. But prayer is an acknowledgement that in and of ourselves, there's absolutely nothing that we can do. And so the result is, the child is in the same condition, the father is in despair, and the scribes are delighting in the failure of the disciples. Jesus' response is biting and cutting as he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. Probably he's speaking to the disciples and he's upset because they haven't gotten it after all of this time of spending with him. It's like he's saying to them, when are you going to figure out that I am the way and the truth and the life? Yes, the disciples of all people should get it. But what about us? How do we live our own lives? It's easy for us to look at the disciples with consternation. But do we live our lives with dependence and confidence in Jesus or ourselves? When there's an obstacle in our path, when there's a challenge, do we look immediately to our Heavenly Father and the Son? Or do we take stock in our abilities, in our gifts, in our resources? Do we look for Christ or do we look to ourselves? All too often I know in my life that I look to myself. And the result is I find that I have no power, no success in this particular challenge. And the result is frustration. See, I've forgotten, and it's so easy for us to forget, a fundamental principle of Christianity. That some may trust in horses, and some may trust in chariots, but we trust in the name of the Lord, our God. I don't know if you remember the name Timothy McVeigh. Timothy was the infamous Oklahoma City bomber that planted a bomb in 1995 that killed 168 people and injured more than 680 others. He was sentenced to die and, and, and by lethal injection in June of 2001. And when they asked Timothy McVeigh if he had any final statement to give, he simply handed the warden a piece of paper that had a poem on it. I'm gonna read it to you. It's called Invictus, which means unconquerable, by William Ernest Henley. This were Timothy McVeigh's last words. Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. 
Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade, and yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters now not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. This is the picture and a poem and the sentiments of one that has no space for God in their life, has no need of him. For I am in charge and my soul is all that there needs to be. See, we love to live on the mountain, don't we? But we have to come down and live below. And yet we're called to live miraculous lives. But how? We must give up on ourselves. We must stop trusting in ourselves and look to Christ. I and you must acknowledge that I am not the captain of my soul. So how do I know if I'm trusting in self or I'm trusting in Christ? Here are three specific ways that you can know. Number one, does my prayer life shine or does my prayer life stink? Is there a constant looking to the Lord for strength, for help, for sustenance? Or am I so busy looking around me that I have no time for such trivialities? Am I in the center of my thoughts? Or is Christ more and more becoming positioned on the throne of my life, my heart, and my thoughts? I might have said three points, but I wanted to give two. <laughs> Powerful, Carlos. The disciples failed. But what about the Father? It's interesting that I titled my second point the success of the Father because it seems like he's failed, right? He's acknowledged, I do believe, help my unbelief. Jesus asked his Father, he's turned from the disciples in verse 21 and he looks at the Father, how long has this been happening to him? From childhood, the Father said. So all his life, his Father has been watching over this child. Can you imagine what that feels like? One, that your child, through this spirit, has a death wish and could die at any time. This father is exhausted and exasperated. And the father says honestly and openly, and it has often cast him into the fire to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. The father has said to Jesus, if you can help us, not if you will help us. See, by saying if you can do, He's questioning not his willingness, but his ability. And yet, he has come to Jesus. Why does this man have such weak faith in Jesus? Well, no one before has been able to help his son. He's hoped and tried, I'm sure, countless times going to whoever he could find. And all have failed. And the reality is it hurts to hope, doesn't it? Hurts to get your hopes up and then for them to be dashed. Better to protect your heart. And so he comes to Jesus, but he comes with weak faith. And Jesus responds, if you can, all things are possible to the one who believes. Translation, Jesus is saying to this man, I can do it if you believe. Immediately the father calls out, I believe, help my unbelief. 
Notice it just leaps out of him. It, immediately this man doesn't just speak out, but cries out. In other words, he's saying, I'm trying, but I'm full of doubts. See, this guy knows he can't fool Jesus. He knows that he's full of doubt. He knows that he has just a, a smidgen of faith. He knows that he doesn't have the necessary belief, the necessary righteousness to stand before the God of the universe. This man has an acute understanding that he is not enough. And I love Jesus' response. Jesus could have said, well, I tell you what, go and get your act together. Pray and learn and grow. Start living a holy life. And when you've pulled it all together, come back to me and when you have enough faith and then I will heal your son. That's what every other religious system would tell him to do, by the way. Go and behave and belong and do your things. And maybe, just maybe then, you'll get what you're looking for. But Jesus does the exact opposite. When Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, in other words, he realizes he's drawing a devotion. What does he do? He speaks to the unclean spirit, saying, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing terribly, it came out. Because every spirit, everything, evil or good, must obey Jesus Christ. See, Jesus actually listens to the Father, even though the Father says, I do believe, help my unbelief. Because the Father does exactly what Jesus said needed to be done, didn't he? He prayed. I mean, what is prayer? Like I said, it's an expression of impotence and an attitude of dependence on God. What that man, that father said to Jesus is, I can't, but you can. I don't have enough faith, but you do. I'm not, but you are. It's the exact opposite of the world that we live in that says to us, get your act together. Pull it together. And this attitude keeps us from God. But this guy came broken, doubting, but he came. He trusted Christ to lead him. And Christ healed his son. I don't know if you're familiar with the name Eric Weyenmeyer, or excuse me, Weyenmeyer. Eric Weyenmeyer. He's an American athlete. He's an adventurer. He's an author, an activist and one of the world's most sought after motivational speakers. He's an expert mountain climber. He's climbed the seven summits. He's climbed over 150, 14,000 uh, feet uh, peaks, and he's climbed Mount Everest. But what makes Eric special, uh, more different than everyone else, is that Eric is blind. He's the first and I believe only person to have climbed Mount Everest blind. Now, Mount Everest is littered with people who have tried and failed and died. And yet this man managed to climb Mount Everest. How did he do it? Blind. He understood that he could not do it alone. And so everywhere you see Eric Weyenmeyer, you see another name, Jeff Evans. Jeff Evans is a world-class climber who is trained in emergency medicine. 
And Jeff Evans has been Eric Weyenmeyer's guide on every single one of these efforts. It's Jeff Evans' job to walk in front of Eric Weyenmeyer and to lead him step by step, handhold by handhold, where literally you're dealing with life and death if Jeff makes a mistake or Eric makes a mistake. But life, by life and limb, he's gotten Eric to the top. Jeff had a responsibility to lead, but Eric had a responsibility as well, didn't he? To commit, to understand that I can't do it on my own. That in order to go up, I must go down. I must humble myself and recognize that I do not have what it takes. See, my friends, we have the best leader that one could ever ask for. The one who's walked life before us, exactly like us, fully God and fully human. And yet walk through the landmine that's called humanity, never sinning, and calls us to follow him. But you and I have to realize that we're blind. That we don't know the way. That left on our own, we will surely fall away from the path of righteousness. So it really all comes down to this with Jesus Christ. Do you trust him? With your marriage, do you trust him that he's got this? And that if you walk after him in his path, he will lead you on the path of righteousness from your side. Do you trust him with your future, that God has a plan for you, that he knows exactly where you're going, where you need to get, and when you need to get there? Are you dealing with sickness? Do you trust him that he's right in the middle of it? That he'll lead you through or lead you into sickness, but he will be there with you and he will protect you and he will watch over you. This man brought his hopes, he brought his dreams, and he brought his doubts. He brought himself. And so we must bring ourselves as well. Because Jesus works on behalf of those who put no confidence in themselves and lean instead on the character and promises of God. This brings me to my final point, the healing of the Son. Another beautiful spiritual principle of life is that God works through broken things to make beautiful things. And after crying and convulsing terribly, after Jesus commanded the Spirit, it came out and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. This boy who had had this mute and deaf spirit, epileptic spirit from all, for all of his life, was changed and transformed through the half-hearted, half-witted faith of the dad and the power of Jesus Christ. I think that's why I love this picture so much. Because a heavenly power that is above, has been brought down into a dark world. That's what Jesus does, by the way. He's in the business of bringing Eden into the midst of chaos. Jesus has the power to bring peace in the midst of chaos into our lives. It's why he came. 
Because it's about him. He must become greater. And we must become less. And so we trust and obey. When you can't move forward, lean forward. And when you can't lean forward, fall forward. You can't even fall forward. Just reach out your hand. Because what Jesus is looking for is faith. Any faith will do. Even doubting faith. Because Jesus works on behalf of those who put no confidence in themselves and lean instead on the character and promises of God. God wants to bring Eden into your world. He can bring peace in the midst of chaos. And God wants to work through you to bring beauty into this world. So let him. Because God works through broken things to make beautiful things. Would you rather be the mountain guy or would you rather be the father with weak faith and unbelief who comes to Jesus? I'd rather be that guy because I want to see what Jesus does in my life and in the lives of those around me. Don't you? Let's pray. God, we thank you that you turn the world upside down. That what you're looking for is for us to bring ourselves to acknowledge the fact that we don't have it all together. In fact, we're barely holding it together. Uh, but we believe in you. And you, who lived a successful life, have the power and authority to bring heaven down to earth. Would you do so in our lives, in our relationships, in those around us? Lord, that we would be broken, that you might make beauty in us and around us. This is our prayer. Pray all of these things in Christ's name. Amen.